portion of his word. I'm going to read from the Gospel of Matthew this morning, chapter 26, verses 1 through 13. I'm sorry, I, this morning I want, to, uh, I want to read through verse 16 this morning. That will be our focus, verses 1 through 16. When Jesus had finished all these words, that is the words he had given to his disciples on the Mount of Olives, he said to his disciples, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Then the chief priests and the elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas, and they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth and kill him. But they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur among the people. Now when Jesus was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper, a woman came to him with an alabaster vial of very costly perfume. And she poured it on his head as he reclined at the table. But the disciples were indignant when they saw this and said, Why this waste? For this perfume might have been sold for a high price and the money given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you bother the woman? For she has done a good deed to me. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. For when she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be spoken of in memory of her. Then one of the twelve named Judas Iscariot went to the chief priests and said, What are you willing to give me to betray him to you? And they weighed out 30 pieces of silver to him. From then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pause and ask God to help us. So we do so, our Father, as we begin our study of the high point of the Gospel of Matthew, really the high point of your holy word, as we come to your Spirit's record and presentation of the sufferings, death, burial, and resurrection of your Son. We ask, O God, at the outset of this study over the next several months, that you would exalt yourself, exalt your son, that you would save sinners and change us so that we are not the same. We ask this to you who are the only one who can do this. And we ask it with hope because we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, this is a significant turning point in the Gospel of Matthew. In some ways, the entire Gospel has been leading up to this point. From the very beginning, the angel announced that his name should be Jesus, which means Yahweh saves, 
For this reason, he would save his people from their sins. And we know from the scriptures and from the presentation and teaching of Jesus that the only way that his people are going to be saved from their sins is if he, the Messiah, the Son of God, not only lives for them, not only preaches the kingdom to them, but suffers, bleeds, dies like a sacrificial lamb in atonement for their sins against a holy God. The entire gospel has been building up to this point. The gospel is not primarily about ethics, though we are taught ethics certainly in the Bible and in the teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ, how we are to live. The gospel is not primarily about what a moving speaker Jesus was or what kind of healer he was, though he was one that soldiers were able to say, no man has ever spoken like he has. He was a preacher like none other that's ever walked the earth, and no one has ever healed like he did. All of these things were to simply prove and to attest to the fact that he is the promised Messiah, the servant of God, the long-awaited Savior of Israel and of all who will trust and believe in Jesus. He is the king. And if the king is to establish his kingdom, and if the king is to save his people who are citizens of the kingdom, he must lay down his life. The whole gospel, in a sense, has been preparing for this moment, preparing us for this moment. But in a way, we're surprised. We've been going along, and here we are, and we've come to it after several years' study. But Jesus was not taken by surprise. This was the plan of God, and we'll see that this morning. This whole passage that we've read this morning, the first 16 verses, is really about various preparations. It's the key word, if you will, for this passage. Jesus preparing his disciples. God using the worship of this woman to prepare Jesus for his burial. The religious leaders preparing to kill Jesus and Judas preparing to betray Jesus. And that will be our outline this morning as we go through these verses. But did you notice it? the verses in the opening verses of chapter 26 move from scene to scene? In the first two, Jesus is talking to his disciples. Suddenly the scene moves to a scene of the chief priests and the elders. They're talking about how they're going to kill him. And then suddenly we're transported to another scene where there's a woman who is, who is worshiping Jesus with very costly perfume, and then suddenly we're back with Judas before the chief priests and the elders. How can he betray him? It's, it's moving around. The Holy Spirit, who is the author of this gospel, has a purpose and has an intent. He, he's moving us from scene to scene rather quickly to help us understand that Jesus Christ died for sinners according to the plan and preparation ultimately, of God. 
Some may have prepared in love, others in hate, but all, whether in love or hate, were making preparations that were under the sovereign plan of God. Let's look first at verses 1 and 2. In love, Jesus prepared his disciples for his sufferings and death. If you're taking notes, that's our first point. In love, Jesus prepared his disciples for his sufferings and death. It is in love. How do you hear Jesus saying these words to his disciples? Do you hear him frustrated? (laughs) Guys have told you this so many times. You guys are such dullards, dense. Get this into your thick heads. Uh, I, I don't hear him saying that um, I might be tempted to talk in that way. Our Lord is, uh, as we learned this morning in the psalm, thank God that God is not like us and that Jesus is not like us in regard to sin. He's perfectly holy and he is a good and gentle, loving king. He is the judge, as we learned in chapter 25. But for those who love him and believe in him and follow him, as these disciples except Judas have, he loves them. He loves his own. He loves them to the uttermost. And so here, Jesus in verses 1 and 2, after he's answered their question about the signs of the end times, of the coming of the kingdom, and he's answered their question with great detail, drawing upon what has already been revealed in the Old Testament, he simply reiterates in verse 2, you know that after two days the Passover is coming and the Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Now, the disciples by this time know that when he uses that title, Son of Man, Jesus is referring to himself. He's owning unabashedly, unashamedly, that messianic title of the Son of Man that Daniel saw before in the vision in chapter 7, Daniel chapter 7. He's claiming to be the Messiah. His disciples know this. They believe this. They're not confused about that. They believe he's the Messiah. They just don't understand how this is playing out. They thought that the Messiah would come and simply judge their enemies and save Israel, and that's that. But they had neglected the scriptures that had taught and prophesied that God must provide one who would make atonement for the sins of his people. You know, Jesus says, you know that after two days, this is Wednesday afternoon, evening. It's Wednesday afternoon, early evening. He's been speaking to his disciples on the Mount of Olives. Passover is going to be most broadly and officially recognized on Friday The lambs for the Passover are going to be sacrificed at the very time that Jesus, the Lamb of God, is being crucified. I I will just note here that Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples the next day on Thursday. There's some confusion about that. Why why was the Lord's Supper? Was it a Passover meal? It, It was. And how could it be that they were celebrating the Passover on Thursday if the Passover was on Friday? And 
And you can uh, look into that. I think the best and simplest explanation we have is that uh, there was different reckoning of days, partly whether you were from Galilee or from Judea in the south. And most of Jesus' disciples were Galileans, as was Jesus. And and typically they started the day in the evening before. And, And so how that played out was that the Galileans would typically... Uh, have their lambs slaughtered on the, uh, on this case, Thursday, and, and honor the meal on the evening. Um, and a practical matter, there were, it's estimated there are possibly up to two million people coming to Jerusalem around this time to celebrate the Passover. And just from a practical standpoint, uh, there are thousands upon thousands upon thousands of lambs that need to be slaughtered by the priests and so you just partly have a practical matter of you probably can't even get that done in one day one afternoon so there's various explanations as to why um, Jesus celebrated the Passover with his disciples on Thursday not Friday when he was being crucified Uh, but the important thing is that Jesus tells his disciples that what is going to happen, that on, on Passover, and again, let me just, uh, illustration, uh, if I, I'm not going to ask for a show of hands, but, but some of you open your Christmas presents on Christmas Eve. You, not many of you, right? Uh, but, but some of you do, uh, and that's, that's a tradition. Um, um, my wife's family, German, I, I, they claimed it was German background, open on Christmas Eve. I, I just felt it was always that they couldn't wait. But, but uh, you know, some of you, some of you Christmas Eve, some of you Christmas morning, some of you later, you know, so we can understand how that would happen. So enough about that. Uh, don't get hung up on the timing and don't think that there's some serious, you know, um, conflicting uh, description here. The Passover is predominantly celebrated on Friday. That is when Jesus will be crucified. He says, you know that after two days, Passover is coming. The Son of Man is to be handed over for crucifixion. Why is he telling them this? I think because he loves them. It's a preparation of love. And this isn't the first time, is it? Matthew 16, verse 21. From that time on, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem, suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes, be killed and be raised up on the third day. Matthew chapter 17, verse 22 and 23. While they were gathering together in Galilee, Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day. And they were deeply grieved. Matthew chapter 20, verse 18, verses 18 and 19. Behold, we are going to Jerusalem, Jesus said to his disciples, and the Son of Man will be betrayed to the chief priests and scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him over to the Gentiles to mock and flog and crucify him, and on the third day he will be raised up. This is not the first time he's told them this. He has told them clearly, plainly, repeatedly, and he does so again now, as in only two days' time, he will be crucified. He loves them. In love, Jesus prepared his disciples for his suffering and death. 
Don't you love Jesus for that? He's the one who's going to suffer. He's the one who's going to die. He obviously knows some of the detail. They're going to mock him. They're going to flog him. He's not naive as to the kind of horrors he is about to endure. And yet, virtually on the eve of that, his heart and his concern is not for himself, but for his men whom he loves. What a Lord. What a Savior. He prepares his men for his suffering and death and resurrection. Secondly, in verses 3 through 5 this morning, we see that in hatred, in hatred, the chief priests and elders prepared to kill Jesus. Jesus prepared his men in love. The chief priests prepared to kill Jesus, and it was out of the motive of hatred. They hated him. We're told in verse 3, the chief priests and elders of the people were gathered together in the court of the high priest named Caiaphas. Caiaphas, we know not only from the Bible, but from um, contemporary literature at that time, that he was the longest serving high priest and that he was the son-in-law of one particularly powerful uh, man who'd served as priest named Annas. We'll learn about him as we go along. Caiaphas was, was the high priest, which at that time meant that he was the man who controlled the Temple Mount. He was the man who basically controlled the official religion of Israel. He was the man who was the go-between between Rome and between and the Roman officials and Israel. You have to understand, in no way, shape, or form... Are these chief priests and elders sincere, godly men, with, with rare exception, like maybe a Nicodemus, that God changed his heart? These guys are like the mafia. It's really how you should think about it. They're like the mob. They, they control the money. This is business. This is big business. Think about it. Everybody, if you're Jewish, has to come, if you're going to maintain your religion, has to come, has to worship God, And Jesus, we know, cleared out the temple more than one time because in the temple, they had a racket. You would have to trade in what you brought for what they offered in order for it to be acceptable there. And you'd lose your money going to Jerusalem. And where did the money go? It went to Caiaphas, the chief priests, and the elders. There's nothing in their hatred of Jesus There's not one ounce of concern for true religion. They're not trying to protect the truth. They're not concerned that Jesus isn't really the Messiah. They have zero concern for that. They are bloodthirsty men who care only about their position, about their title. And as we've learned in church history, uh, the papacy in Rome in history has been somewhat like that. So this shouldn't be surprising to us. Didn't start with Rome, though. These men love the money. They love their position. They love their power. And they have no intention of giving it up. And Jesus hasn't respected them. He doesn't acknowledge them as legitimate. In fact, he's only exposed and condemned them openly and repeatedly. For example, turn back to chapter 23, verses 32 and 33. 
Jesus here is particularly addressing, we're told, the scribes and the Pharisees. The Pharisees hated Caiaphas. I mean, there was internal disputes. The Sadducees were more the secular religious guys, liberals, if you will. The Pharisees were the legalists, the zealots, if you will. But they were all part of the religious establishment. And to the religious establishment, which included the Pharisees, the scribes, certainly the chief priests and the elders, this is the kind of thing that Jesus would say openly and publicly, verse 32 and 33. To them he said, Fill up then the measure of guilt of your fathers, you serpents, you brood of vipers. How will you escape the sentence of hell? Wow. It'd be akin to Jesus standing in Rome and saying that to the Pope. How do you think that go over in the world? You brood of vipers, how will you escape the sentence of hell? He had no fear for the religious establishment, for those who perverted the truth of God, the true gospel, and kept the people under bondage to fear, man-made tradition, and pilfered the people. And, and my sermon was not to meant to be about Roman Catholicism, but you have to understand that's what Roman Catholicism does. Plays on the fears of people, offers ultimately no hope. And I know we have many Roman Catholic friends that we love who are kind people, who are not like this. I understand that. But as a system, it's corrupt. Jesus found a system like that in his day in Jerusalem, and the chief priests and elders represented it. And because he called them to account, and because he exposed their corruption, they hated him. So they're not content to just somehow silence him. Verse 4 of chapter 26, they plotted together to seize Jesus by stealth, and kill him. They're not interested in any legal process. They're not interested in going through a deliberate process. They have their resources. They're like the mob. They're going to take him out. But, verse 5, not during the festival, otherwise a riot might occur. Remember, as Jesus came into Jerusalem that week, the mood among the people at the moment, because of all his healing and his provision of food and the multiplying of the bread and so forth, remember, they hailed him as king. Hosanna to the son of David, they cried. So the chief priests and, and scribes and elders, they understand that there's a risk. If they take Jesus and kill him openly, there's a risk that the crowds might turn on them. So the timing isn't very right, but they're making preparations. They, they've, they've tried to expose Jesus publicly. Remember in the temple when Jesus was teaching, they tried to send forward some of their experts who could embarrass Jesus, and all Jesus did was embarrass them. They've tried all those tactics. They're done. It's time 
for this Galilean to breathe no more. So preparations are in play. Thirdly, this morning in verses 6 to 13, we come to a beautiful passage. We move from Jesus' love for his disciples, the chief priest's hatred for Jesus, to the loving worship of a woman who understood that Jesus was her Savior. In love, Mary, that's her name, Mary prepared Jesus for his burial. How do we know this is part of preparation? That's what Jesus says in verse 12. When she poured this perfume on my body, she did it to prepare me for burial. Wow. And how do we know it's Mary? We know that from John chapter 12, verse 3, the Gospel of John, which recounts this same scene, this same episode. John chapter 12, verse 3 tells us, Mary took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. This scene in Matthew chapter 26, verses 6 through 13, it took place at the house of Simon the leper in Bethany. It, it likely took place earlier in the week as Jesus was coming to the outskirts. Again, the, the Holy Spirit and Matthew can do that. It's, it's not... Um, The purpose of the gospel is to present an accurate portrayal of the life, ministry, sufferings, death, and burial, and resurrection of Christ. And so to emphasize here that God was behind the scenes in his sovereignty, orchestrating all things and preparing all things, the Holy Spirit has Matthew include here, as does Mark and as does Luke, this description of the worship of this woman and it is interesting that God highlights the worship of a woman in a time and age when women were belittled and thought little of don't miss it that this is unparalleled in ancient scripture for how the scriptures portray women and honor them There's there's nothing in antiquity that comes close to this. And in the big scheme of the Bible, remember where we start in the beginning? Who was it that believed the lie of the serpent? A woman. Yes, Adam's responsible, but it was Eve first who sinned. And isn't it beautiful that in God's redemption here as we come near to the scene of high, and the means by which mankind, those who believe, will be redeemed, that God purposefully, the Holy Spirit purposefully in his scriptures elevates the dignity and the role and the worship of these women. Not only Mary here, this woman, but of the women who will watch Jesus crucified, who will be there at the tomb Don't miss that. It's beautiful. Jesus was in Bethany, outside, just outside Jerusalem, at the home of a leper. By now, he had been doubtlessly healed by Jesus. 
A woman comes to Jesus with an alabaster vial. The, the, the container itself is, is costly and valuable. And what's in the container is very costly perfume. We know from the other gospel accounts, as I just read from John, it's, it's a substance that is very, very costly. The disciples are right. Verse 9, the perfume could have been sold for a high price. If we took the average wage in this room for a year's salary, that's about what it would be. I mean, I don't know exactly what that would be, but, but it was about a year's salary. So, so take your year's salary, your best year, and go buy some perfume <laughs> and hold that perfume and then think, what am I going to do with this perfume? Mary, as it were, takes it. I'll tell you what I'm going to do with it. I'm going to take it and I'm going to anoint Jesus with it, pour it on his head and on his feet because he's worth it. It it is amazing what this woman does. And in the context of the confusion of the disciples, the hatred of Judas and of the chief priests, Mary this woman is a singular figure in that she seems to have taken Jesus's words to heart. She seems to understand what he's been saying. The son of man is going to Jerusalem, is going to be handed over to the chief priests and scribes. She's heard this. She's heard this. She's never heard Jesus tell a lie. He said he's going to die and he's going to be buried. He's going to rise again. Maybe she has a hard time getting her head around that. But she believes it. She, she maybe grieves over it. She maybe doesn't understand it, but she believes it. And so she thinks, what, what could be fitting? How could I honor my Lord and my King and my Redeemer? So she takes this very costly perfume. She poured it on his head, verse 7, as he reclined at the table. It's interesting to think that the, this perfume, which, which I mean, it's, it's a large amount and doubtless was very aromatic. You, 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 could, you could smell it even if you didn't have good smell. It, it just that much. Whenever you were around Jesus, think of it, the entire rest of the week, that was the dominant smell. The entire rest of the week, you were with Jesus. One of the first things that impressed you was, what's that smell? That, that's amazing. It's a smelly world back then. People use perfumes to cover over odors. This is a very large amount. You didn't use that much. You didn't waste it. They thought it was wasted. She understood it wasn't wasted. 
And, and what a testimony to Jesus. What a love gift from the Father through this woman. That the entire week, as he was misunderstood, as he was rejected, he always had, even in the midst of the spitting and the blood and the, the sufferings, there was always with him throughout the week the odor of this perfume that reminded him that not all hated him and that his father had provided and prepared for his burial. Beautiful. They, the disciples just cared about the money, and we know that from the Gospel of John and other Gospels that Judas in particular was incensed because he held the money box and he, uh, he didn't like this. He was missing out on a huge profit. And so we don't know, but maybe he's the one who started, you know, he's the numbers guy maybe, and nothing against numbers guys. Um, uh, <laughs> we need numbers guys. I need them. But, you know, maybe he's, maybe he's kind of like just, guys, do you know how much that's worth? Do you know what the street value is that? And, and they're indignant. And, and the line, this might have been sold, verse 9, for a high price and the money given to the poor. At least on Judas's part, this has nothing to do with the poor. This only has to do with his own pockets. On the disciples' part, as much as they love Jesus and believe that he's the Messiah, they still don't get it. It's good that they care for the poor. That's part of the law of the kingdom from the very beginning is to have a compassionate heart towards those who are poor among us. Is absolutely part of the kingdom and is absolutely part of the kingdom ethic as taught by Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount and in the remainder of the New Testament. But his disciples are missing who Jesus is, and they're forgetting that the highest priority, the highest priority is worship, is worship. Jesus, like his Father, our God is worthy of costly worship, costly worship. There's way too much cheap worship these days, way too much cheap worship. Worship that costs us nothing. I mean, in fact, today we're all about what's the most convenient for us, you know. I mean, I'd really rather stay home and watch worship. Not sure I can really get out of my routine and get some clothes on. And, and by the way, how, how long is this thing going to be? God is... The God of the Bible and Christ is worthy of costly worship. We might want to think about that this morning. And I'll say this. There's really nothing practical about biblical worship. So if you want practical worship, go to a hardware store. But when we come to this place as the people of God, pragmatics go out the window. 
and the truth and the value of the glory of who our God is and of Jesus Christ comes to the fore. And, and we're on a whole new scale of value. What can I give him? How can I express with what little I have something of my gratitude and my adoration and my love for the one who gave himself up for me? May God cause our worship to be more like Mary's. She loved him with a holy love and understood that he was her king and her redeemer. And so she honored him with costly worship, sincere worship, wasteful worship. Wasteful worship. I I like that term. May God cause our worship to seem more wasteful to the world. Why would you spend that kind of time? Why would you waste that kind of money? You you, you, You give to the church? I mean, you know what you could do with that? Couldn't we be more practical helping different programs? Wasteful. Her worship is wasteful. But Jesus points out it is purposeful. I wonder if she knew. She, she believed his words. Maybe she was thinking he's going to be buried. He needs to have this beautiful scent, costly, kingly perfume. But Jesus understands that there was a purpose in it. It was not for nothing. It may not have been pragmatic from the disciples' standpoint, but that doesn't mean it was purposeless. It had a holy purpose designed by God to prepare Jesus for his burial, verse 12. And because of the act of worship that she carried out on that day, God honored her, and Christ knew this. Verse 13, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will be spoken of in memory of her. That's why it's recorded in every gospel. God points to the costly, sincere, humble, loving, wasteful worship of this woman and exalts it and says it, sets it before our eyes and for all generations and essentially says, this is the kind of worship of my son that I'm looking for because this is the kind of worship my son is worthy of. In love, Mary prepared Jesus for his burial. Fourthly, this morning, in verses 14 and 16, it's jarring. We turn from from her love for Christ in this beautiful act of worship to Judas' betrayal, verses 14 to 16. In hatred, Jesus betrayed, rather, Judas prepared to betray Jesus. In hatred, Judas prepared to prepare to betray Jesus. You see, there is a back and forth, isn't there? Jesus speaking to his disciples in love. The chief priests and elders preparing in hate. Mary worshiping in love. Judas making plans in hate. This is back and forth. And it's so ugly. Judas went to the chief priests. He's followed Jesus for three years. He's seen Jesus up close. He knows that Jesus is not 
a liar. He knows that Jesus is true and that he is holy. He knows that Jesus is not a scoundrel or a a sham. He's seen his deeds of power up front. He was in the boat, seeing the waves stilled. He's seen men and women walk who never walked, see who never seen, hear who have never heard. He has seen Jesus' love and compassion for the most humble. He has had an up-close personal opportunity to see the truth that Jesus is, in fact, his King and Messiah. And yet Judas hates him. He hates him for the same reason that every sinner hates God and hates Jesus Christ. Because Judas loves himself, he loves his sin, and he does not want to humble himself and submit to the plan of God. Maybe if Jesus had come and actually kicked out the Romans and, and maybe done something so that Judas could have a position and in the kingdom and maybe have some lucrative side work in Jesus' kingdom, then maybe he would follow Jesus. But as to the truth about Jesus and who he is, Judas has no interest. In fact, his only interest is he hates him for it. He hates Jesus. He hates God. He can't stand it anymore. And so he goes to the chief priests and asks them a question. Verse 15, what are you willing to give me to portray him to you? What are you willing to give me? He's not just going to hand him over for nothing. He's going to get something out of it. They say 30 pieces of silver. In the Old Testament, that was the price for a slave. If a slave was somehow hurt by your bull or your ox, with, was, if a slave, someone else's servant or slave was gored, you had to pay, if it was your bull or your ox that killed another man's slave, you had to pay a redemption price of 30 pieces of silver. So they had 30 pieces of silver. He agrees to it. And verse 16, from then on, he began looking for a good opportunity to betray Jesus. We don't know exactly the moment when he went to the chief priests, but, but this is all playing out in that week. He's with Jesus, and he's looking for a good opportunity, and he's going to find it. He hated Christ, and he prepared to deliver him to his enemies. It's amazing, all this preparation... But behind it all, as we've already stated, fifthly and finally this morning, in love for his people and hatred of sin, God the Father prepared and delivered his Son for us all. Love for his people, hatred of sin. God prepared and delivered his son over for us all. Two passages I want to turn to in closing this morning. Turn with me to Acts chapter 2, verse 22. After the resurrection of Christ and his ascension into heaven, on the day of Pentecost, as Peter stood up full of the Holy Spirit, he understands now the plan of God, he gets it. 
He sees that it was revealed in the Old Testament scriptures all along. He just hadn't wanted to see it. Now he sees it. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 22, Peter, as he's standing up, says, Men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But they're handing him over the chief priests and the elders, Judas, and all those who worked and prepared to murder and to kill Jesus, behind that and over that, superseding that, was the holy, good, loving, glorious, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. Jesus was preparing his disciples. Mary was preparing Jesus for his burial. The chief priests and elders preparing to kill him. Judas making plans, preparing to betray him. God was sovereign over it all. It was the plan of God. So what we are about to study in the coming weeks is the unfolding of the long-planned, foretold, mysterious gospel of God, the only way by which he provides for sinners to be saved. And this is a wonderful hope. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8 and we'll close with this. You know Romans 8. Romans chapter 8, verse 32. This is the mystery of God's sovereignty. The mystery of God's sovereignty of man's responsibility. This was in love. In God in love saving his people. Romans 8.32, the Apostle Paul says, speaking of God, the Father, he who did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all. Delivered him over for us all. Do you see the plan of God working in and over and through all of these various people? He delivered his son over for us all. How will he not also with him freely give us all things? If God made such preparations for our Savior to accomplish our salvation, what fear have we of anything? If God is for us, Who can be against us? This morning, you just want to be sure that you are found among those who love Jesus, not among those who hate him. Where are you? 
What say you about Jesus? What kind of worship is our worship? Do we confess with our mouths and with our lives and with our worship the glory of this wonderful Savior? May God make it so. Let's pray. God, we are awed this morning by your plan, really overwhelmed by the extent to which you went to ensure that Jesus would die for our sins according to your plan. We love you for it. We love him for it. We are, we fear you for it. We fear him for it. That he, knowing full well what he was going to experience, didn't flinch, didn't blink, didn't stutter, didn't falter. But the greatest man The Son of Man, our Savior, went face forward, eyes wide open into the fire of the cross for us. He took hell for us. What can we say? We worship you, Lord Jesus. We maybe don't have the costly gift that Mary had on that day, but we worship you and we pray that our lives will be an appropriate sacrifice. You are worthy of our best. You are worthy of wasteful worship. May we testify in the face of an unbelieving world and in the face of all pragmatists, religious pragmatists, that there's none like you, that you are a great Savior and our King. We love you in your name. Amen.